it challenges that person in charge to take a moment and live through my eyes and see what it is that black women, marginalized people in general, are dealing with while working inside of their companies. I am unwilling to give up that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out. Knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control. 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 Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders. We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden, and I'm so excited to have our next guest here, Tali Lavari. She is the author of a brand new book, Confessions from Your Token Black Colleague, and she's also the founder of Yum Yum Morale. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited. Very excited to have you here. So just a little bit of background on who we have here today. Really, really notable on so many levels. So she's a former collaborator with Haas's, that's the Berkeley Center for Equality, Gender, and Leadership, and a member of Washington State University's Foster School of Business Alumni. She actually lives up in Seattle, and she's also the founder, as I mentioned, of Yum Yum Morale, a diversity and inclusion consultancy that works with leaders and their employees to promote a diverse equitable, and inclusive workplace. We know that that is on everybody's mind at the moment as well, so can't wait to dig in there a lot more. Before devoting her life to workplace race relations, she worked as a as an events manager, planning and producing events in government, education, pharmaceutical, lots of different tech as well, lots of different sectors. And she's had the honor of working with Marianne Williamson, the Golden State Warriors, and of course, the Barack Obama, very exciting, among other luminaries. And she's, you know, truly fearless leader, as many of you know, launching my book as we speak called Undaunted Leadership. Can't wait to hear more about her journey on today's show. So very, very excited. Welcome. And I can't wait to dig in here. So take us back to the beginning. Did you always know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think so. So Nobody's asked me that. It it reminds me of when I was young and I would say, oh, I'm so stressed. And my mom would say, "Uh, how else do you even want to be? Like, (laughs) you just like me. All over the place. And if you want to be an entrepreneur, you better enjoy some level of being stressed. (laughs) So yeah, I think so. However, you know, I think life and circumstances makes entrepreneurship hard, challenging, especially for someone like myself with no backing or having an example of that. And so I did go into the corporate world and found myself being a token all the time. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> Let's talk about Barack. So what did you end up doing for Barack Obama? Well, that's funny because Barack Obama is, I always say, like pushed me into entrepreneurship. The Barack Obama event was the very last event that I ever worked in corporate America, the one that pushed me to my breaking point. And it wasn't because of Barack, put that out there. However, um, that event was 
accidentally placed upon me through a company that I had recently started to work for. And when I got this event, what happens is they assign different managers different events. When I got it, it was just a simple, small, 300-person event, no speaker in mind, no big deal, just give it to her, whatever. So about three months goes by and I've done all the planning. I've taken ownership of the event and then it pops up. The client goes, oh yeah, so Barack Obama's going to be the speaker. And to no surprise, drama, drama, drama. A lot of the event space is very coveted because in that event space, there's not a lot of minorities, first of all. There's lots of perks that come with that. Travel, you know, fine dining, nice restaurants, working with celebrities. So I'd already gone through about a decade of just lots of microaggressions, lots of biases, lots of just blatant racism and discrimination. And I was not surprised when it was announced that Barack Obama would be the speaker at this event. I went through hell for probably another three months that led up to it. I didn't sleep. I wasn't eating properly. I was working around the clock so hard. And it's it's just a hard thing to do because I mean, the level of the people that are coming to see Barack, it is Barack. You want to give it your best. And you had the Secret Service. And yeah, that is a whole other thing. And all the rules and all the nuances and the permits and just all the things. And so long story short, that event, they tried to hijack it for me time and time and time again. And so I had to go through so many mental gymnastics and just suck up so much abuse (laughs) until the day of the event. I found myself there. The clients are happy. I'm running around. I remember I checked over 20,000 steps that day. My legs were sore. I mean, I worked. And so the first thing that happened was me, the lead of the event, you will not be getting a picture with Barack Obama. Okay, fine. In fact, put your phone down. You're not even taking a picture on the cell phone. Wow. And there's just like all this abuse happening. People just challenging me, people creating issues where there were none. And so I'm up from 5 a.m. until it's like 6, 7 p.m. And finally, my manager, who had been extremely racist up to this point, decides to text me. And the client's happy. I didn't even get to see Barack Obama. I saw him like on the stage, saw like his arm pass by. Secret Service, the way they work, it's like magic. You'll see his car. And then the next thing you know, he's like up on the stage. <laughs> it's like, whoa. Yeah. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years. 
helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is The Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, The Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that The Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. How did this all happen? That's so, so that was when you decided after doing that event, you well, my manager contacts me and this is the point where there should be champagne bottles popping, right? This is a great event. You've worked hard. The clients are happy. Everything went smoothly. Instead, she 
said, let's get something on the calendar so we can have a meeting with someone to see what you could have done better. And it was just the breaking point for me because that had been her behavior leading up to up to this. And I'm just like, okay, this is impossible. It's really just impossible at this point. So at that point, it took some time, but I ended up, it took some, took a fight because what happened was I got to the point where I was like, I can no longer handle this. We need to have a discussion about it. And obviously they don't want to hear about it. And I ended up leaving and I ended up leaving. I was dating a guy at the time and he was talking to me, you should leave, just forget it. I'm going to, you know, take care. We're going to be fine. And then so I leave the job and I'm already feeling really shaky and I'm sad about it. I'm grieving my career at this point, right? And then about five days later, he comes and says, I'm leaving. I'm going back to my ex goodbye. It was coming from everywhere. <laughs> There's all kinds of other things that I was dealing with, but it was just like, it, that was just too much for me. And I found myself not wanting to live anymore and almost lost my life. And thankfully, friends that were in Texas and Louisiana, down in the South where I'm from, ended up calling and having someone to come and get me. And I spent nine days, nine days in a psychiatric hospital. And that's where I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And all of this came to me because what was happening was I'm in this hospital and I'm trying to talk to people. I'm try And they're just treating me like delusional. And I had to check myself and I said, well, I'm thinking I was just on a plane going to do an event with Barack and I had the company laptop and I had, how dare, do you know who you're talking to? And then it hit me. It's like, yeah, you're a woman in a cyborg. That, that's who they're talking to. And I'm thinking I could run circles around you, do you, you know, and they're, and they're with all this authority. And I said, oh my God, this is so much like corporate. This is so much like corporate. I have so much to say and they don't even realize who I am, what's within me, what my message is. And I quickly learned, and it was down to the water cooler talk and the people that did it so well. And some of the people that really liked being there because it was better than home. And some, and I just was like, oh my God. And I remember just writing over and over, you don't belong here. You don't belong here. You don't belong here. And it was this epiphany. And I said, they're not going to talk to me. They see me as a delusional psych patient. That's where you put yourself. And so I'm like, you don't belong here. And so I've got to position myself. If I'm trying to go and talk to leaders, business leaders, CEOs, and I'm positioning myself as a token employee, they see me as a token employee. What they want to hear from me is, have you pleased my client? How are you saving me money? How are you making me money? Are you getting along well with the rest of the team? They don't want to hear about microaggressions or how this wasn't fair or who didn't do what. So I said, what if you were to position yourself in a place where they would listen to you? Being that token employee isn't working for you. They're not listening to you. As I walked out, I learned to then play politics within the psych board because here's the thing. They want to keep you in there. They want to keep saying, oh, she's crazy. She's this, she's that. And I had to learn to play the game just like you do in corporate America. I had to get, you know, some allies. I had to get people and I had to get them to see that who I really am. And I remember I was walking out and the guy said, don't you ever come back here. You don't belong here. And I just had chills. I just had chills. And I was like, that's it. I'm not coming back here. And I'm not going back into a setting where I am the token black. And one thing I'll tell you uh, within the black community, and I tell them straight up, it's not that I'm, you know, we have glamorized tokenism. Mm -hmm. You are a big shot when you are that black girl that can go in and be the one that is accepted. And it just works against mm -hmm. us. You know, and I just wasn't good at it mm -hmm. anyway, obviously. So that is how we landed in this space. And that literally will be a year ago that I left this loft apartment 
were my friends and I was so pissed. I was, how did I get here? Who called on me? But it would be November 6th, one year. Wow. Amazing. Well, congratulations that that was really, you know, a, I mean, I think it's great that you talk about it too. And that's amazing. So you start this company, Yum Yum Morale, and talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I come home just before Thanksgiving. So it's nine days after November 6th. And I've I've got this notebook that in the book talks about me getting this red notebook and how, I don't know, like, it was just how everything played in, how everything lined up. It's just, it feels magical. But I've got the notebook and I'm like, okay, what am I doing? And I didn't have the full picture. And a lot of people understand in business, you, you don't have the full picture. You just kind of know what you want to do. And I just started working and I just started typing and I just started putting things in place. By mid-December, I formalized the business. It took some time, you know, it's the end of the year. In January, I hit the ground running, just going out, meeting people, talking to people, networking, understanding how to, you know, get bids and how to do clients. And around March is when I started getting work. A lot of it wasn't quite what I wanted. People wanted to tell me what they needed in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space at that time. They weren't willing to listen. And, and when I think back on it, they just wanted to do a checkbox. They just wanted to check off, just come in and talk about it, and we can say that mm-hmm. we did it. So I actually won a scholarship to one of the largest diversity, equity, and inclusion conferences. And I went there. It was March 11th and March 13th. Got there on March 11th. It was amazing. I'm like, my book is coming out. I met all these people. More money opportunities coming. By the 13th, coronavirus has hit. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to fly back into Seattle. So I come back and I'm like, why is my life like this? I've wasted all my time and my money investing in this business. Nobody's going to care. It's all about this stupid virus now. So I'm just defeated. You know, I've kind of started on the book. I'm just like, I don't know what to do. For about a week, I let myself kind of sulk. And then I said, no, get up, keep writing the book, keep moving forward. Just act like everything's fine. And within maybe, I don't know, it was a week or so, then the George Floyd thing happens and my phone is ringing off the hook and I can't even move fast That's amazing. And I had planned to shop the book to maybe a publisher, but I'm like, it was such a long time frame with them and so much uncertainty. I said, you know what? I'm going to go for it. I just want the message out there now. And I worked hard and got it out there and here we are. That's amazing. So what's the most important message that you really want readers to take from the book? Yeah, so my book is broken into three phases. There's three sorts of chapters that you'll find in the book, and they're all kind of mixed mm-hmm. up. There are my personal stories and accounts, which people find extremely interesting. There are these professionals, white professionals, allies, I call the wind beneath the book's wings, that come in and kind of vouch for it. They either have worked on affirmative action cases, they are white people that admit that they've messed up, white people in leadership positions that have tried to be equitable, tried to have the conversations messed up and they've come back around. And so I I really like that too. And then the third part is the actual confessions. And those confessions are me talking to each group or kind of person that I've worked with. And that is white women in particular, who I believe are 99% of the time the, the offenders, for lack of a better word. And then there are other token blacks. There's other marginalized groups. And then I spoke to white male CEOs and there's a big call to action for them because I believe that a lot of the books and the content, you know, and a lot of people assume when they see my book, you know, it's got my face on it. And I'm like, I'm the token. They're like, oh, I'm a black woman and it's for me. And it's going to be all about these stories where you're complaining and, or you're going to tell us like how to be good or how to get a seat at the table. And here's my thing. We need all of that. That's fine. A lot of us are there. We, We need all that. 
but a lot black women are the most educated women in the United States. We are well spoken. We are smart. We are hard workers. I feel like that message is there. That's not my my message. I am placing the onus on the white male CEO who has the power to make the change. And what this book does is it allows him to step out of that ROI mindset. Because when I'm the token, he doesn't want to hear that the group did something that made it impossible for me to work. He wants to know, are you making me my money? Am I getting a return on the investment that I placed in you when I hired? Well, now this book challenges that person in charge. And it, it, you know, ideally the white male CEO, it challenges that person in charge to take a moment and live through my eyes and see what it is that black women, marginalized people in general are dealing with while working inside of their companies. And it challenges them to stop for a moment and have empathy regarding the person and to acknowledge the systemic racism that is piled on top of people such as myself, the intersectionality that a black woman deals with on the gender front, on the wage front, you know, all of that, to really, really soak that up and understand that there needs to be a different level of understanding and that there needs to be more questions asked when this particular person is presented as anything other than mm-hmm. great or you know a great return on your investment. Interesting. And so what do you think is when you get called into these companies what is kind of the the number one thing that they're trying to like fix? Do you still believe it's like a checkbox or do you think that there really are leaders I mean, my opinion is that there are leaders that are trying to fix things. I think that they just don't really know how, right? You took the word out of my mouth. Not only do they not know how, I think that they have become dependent on stating that they don't Mm -hmm. know how. I think that that is a bit of a crutch. And I say this almost every day when I'm talking, every day. I understand that it's not even know how. A lot of people are like, oh my God, I didn't know that this racism was like this. I didn't know that these things were really going on. And okay, that's fine. But we're at a point now where I need to see that you care. And um, a lot of leaders are still trying to do the checkbox. Of course, more than ever, they want the checkbox. But (laughs) surprisingly, I am so raw and so real. I, I believe strongly that I am able to make change. I believe strongly that, matter of fact, they tell me that I'm able to make change that I'm able to, yeah, that's the message that I give. And I think the boldness of calling out the white man that is in charge and to say that, hey, the onus is on you, you know, there's some part of them, they like, they Mm -hmm. like that. It's challenging. It feels uncomfortable. I told a guy the other day, he was talking about how he, what did he say? He said that he was afraid to say certain things because of, he didn't want to put politics on his business. And I said, those days are over. The days of trying to politics is now just a completely different ball game. It used to be a day where we could say, hey, um, I get along with you and I understand your views and, you know, policy and views. Sure, we can disagree on those all day long. But politics now has become so deep rooted in racism that the days of you saying, I'm going to hide from that and I'm not going to do that. That makes you a person that's trying to hold on to your comfort and your privilege. Mm-hmm. Told him that. He's like cringing. It's uncomfortable. But he ended up buying a hundred books, right. <laughs> you know, because he wants that message to get out. And although it's cringy and it's hard to hear, the people that really want to do better and be better, they appreciate my candor. 
and me being honest. I have a chapter in the book, chapter eight. <laughs> I always warn the white women. I said, that's the chapter where I confess to white women. And they're like, oh, I braced myself. And some of them just went straight to it and, and read it. They are always so grateful. They're like, it hurt, it hurt, it hurt. I had to stop. I had to go breathe. I had to, it, it hurt. And then they say, I get it. I'm that woman. I've been that person. I've been that person. I talk about white solidarity, which Dr. D'Angelo, mm -hmm. who wrote the book, White Fragility, mm -hmm. talks a lot about white solidarity. When I tell you that that is, again, it goes back to like 99.9%. .9 it, it was white women that formed that white solidarity to work against me. And then they had the ear of the white man. And once they say it, it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. Videos don't matter. You know, what the client said doesn't matter. When they form that white solidarity and they come to an agreement that this is how we're going to say we feel or this is how we feel. And a lot of that, and just to explain for anybody who doesn't understand it, what happens is if a white woman A has a problem with the token and she mentions it to white woman B, subconsciously white woman B doesn't even need to know the fact. Subconsciously white woman B sides with white woman A because there's this unspoken solidarity of like, imagine how that just made you so uncomfortable. Oh, you know, and I know you, I know you. And, and they even have, have had the nerve to say to me, I know her, I know her, I don't know you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's not what this is about. It's, you know, what about the facts? What about the truth? And so it doesn't matter a lot of times when you are a marginalized person in a work group. So interesting. So what if you are a, I mean, you talked a little bit about this earlier. So what if you are you know, a token individual in a workplace now, I often feel that, you know, I've certainly, you know, worked in environments where I've been one of the only women in tech early on. I mean, it's certainly gotten better, but I feel also like, you know, it's a huge uphill battle and climb to actually, you know, constantly be trying to change environments, right? It's a lot, right? Like it's a lot of energy, you know, what advice would you give to yourself back in working in some of your environments where you felt that way? I spent years banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out what advice I needed to give myself. I went and paid for therapists and, and, and coaches and, and they kept trying to tell me it's not you, it's not you, it's not you. And I think that I'm at a space now where I'm holding firm to, there's nothing I could have told myself. I could have told myself to hold on. And, you know, one day you're going to be in a position where you can learn from this and to be an advocate for others. But those that are there now, what advice would they need from me, don't glamorize tokenism. One of the ways that they can stop glamorizing tokenism is we have this thing where if it's two of us at the workplace, when it's time to go to lunch, hey, meet me at the restaurant because we don't want them to see us going together. We got to stop. Mm -hmm. yes, they, yes, they believe that we're up to no good, but guess what? That's their problem. That's their problem. We fight against each other. There's this one coveted position where that one token can be friends with all of them, but the other one has to be an outsider. We have to stop. That's my advice to people in that position, that in order for us to change, and we're putting this onus on them to change, we have to change that actual belief about ourselves. We are human beings, educated, well-spoken, hard workers, going into a job, doing a job. There is no reason that we should be walking around, tiptoeing, and trying to appease people that see us as something dark. And that's, that would be my opinion. And in the meantime, be honest. 
speak out about what you know what's going on as much as you can a lot of times you can't when you're at work you have to try to play the game and a lot of the games that black women in particular are being taught to play in the workplace further damages so so yeah my advice is to those that are in power to stop for a minute to be comfortable enough to hear this message and to put some things in place and you talked about the energy you talked about the investment there's eight billion dollars a year spent on diversity equity and inclusion training however there's 64 billion dollars a year spent on discrimination cases hmm. something's off here we need you to be proactive and strategic and that's what my company does but the biggest thing that stops companies from from doing that is the unconscious biases the cultures that they have created and then expect an outsider, we'll call them, to come in and fit into this culture. The different codes and secret languages that it's like, you know, you need to figure out how to do that. The passive aggressiveness, all of those things have to be addressed and the time and the money has to be put into making that change. And if you ask me, $64 billion in lawsuits, I think it's worth it. I think it's worth Figuring out what the heck is going on and why does this continue to happen? Yeah. How is it worth it from a financial standpoint? Ethically, ethically, it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. You know what I love just listening to you talk more about this? I love the fact that, you know, you had a problem and you basically took like control of that and started your own thing and, you know, really took everything that you know, challenged you in the past with your great experience that you had and rolled that into a company, right? And so I think that, I mean, that's just really noble. I mean, on a lot of, you know, it's great. And I really think that a lot of your advice and, you know, you talked a little bit about just different cultures. And I mean, I I talk about this actually in my book coming out, how, you know, my first job after college was working in New York City. I was an executive assistant and I was working at uh, Time Magazine. And the culture, what I went to a state university in Arizona. I went to Arizona State University. I never really realized that there was like anything wrong with my education until I got into this culture. And I don't know what their culture is like today, but I think even though I was doing a great job and was sort of noted for doing a great job and people, you know, kind of highlighted the fact that like, oh, you went to a state school and, you know, how'd you get the job here? You know, and and that sort of stuff. After a while, I kind of looked at, you know, the fact that everybody was saying that I was doing a great job and that it was like not really my, you know, place that I wanted to hang out necessarily. And so I decided to go. And, and take all of that great experience and those great reviews of me and go and take it. And so in my next role, I ended up going to CNN and I worked at CNN and like that was a different type of culture where, you know, people were screaming in the hallways at each other. Like when you did something wrong, well, I'm like, ah, you know, <laughs> I kind of want that either. But what I've noticed, and ultimately when I went and built my own company, Hint, was that I could take all of these different cultures and bring them, you know, into the culture that I really loved. 
your company is still early, but I think that's what you'll find. Like, you know, and I bet with employees too, you'll, I think understanding cultures and understanding, you know, like ultimately I bet with your own employees, they'll have things that they liked about their roles that they've been in and things that they didn't like about the roles that they've been in. And I just think that that's really valuable because those lessons ultimately will be, you know, really, really important. So you started this company during the pandemic. You can still do your training through Zoom. And, you know, and so it's been going super well. And obviously you've got this, the book out. Where is the best place for people to buy confessions from your token black colleague? Yep. Just go to Amazon, put it in. It's there. It's also, you can do it at uh, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million. Just do a search for it and it'll pop right up. Awesome. And we're waiting on the audio one, but they're backed up. Apparently, a lot of people are doing audio books right now. So, but it'll be here, I hope, any day now. <laughs> That's awesome. So, this is awesome. Where do people find you on social as well? So, typically on all platforms, I'm at your token black college. Okay. So, I mean, awesome. There. Yeah. What's your favorite? Instagram or, you know, probably, you know, it's all, all of them. I do different things. I talk a lot on Facebook. I have seen like a lot of friendly banter on Instagram and on Twitter. It's just random, like off the cuff, everything over there on Twitter. <laughs> so it's all, it's all good. Awesome. That's super great. So, well, thank you so much for coming and really, really great. And if everybody would definitely, after you've listened to this great episode, definitely give high marks. And as you know, we're here every Monday and Wednesday, and we're really, really excited to have you here. So thank you, everybody, and enjoy the rest of your week, everyone. Thanks so much. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Kara Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.